Welcome to the Modern Warrior Podcast. My name is Anunapadier, and thanks for joining us. Nikki Shaver is the Managing Director of Innovation and Knowledge at global law firm Paul Hastings and the founder of the global meeting group LID, which stands for Legal Innovation Design. Nikki talks about following what she loved from Australia to Canada to the US, ultimately moving into the world of legal innovation and knowledge management and leading a KM team at a top firm. In this episode, she discusses the principles of legal design, really understanding the contours of a problem before jumping into a solution, and how a thought experiment involving a lawnmower can help us in the legal industry. Especially in high-stress, high-tension environments, I think Nikki's words on empathy, understanding, and curiosity in a professional setting will resonate with each of you. As always, rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on. Anand, thank you so much for having me. So Nikki, uh, you have a very impressive background. Uh, you have a very impressive background with respect to your, your depth of, of training and education, with how international your background is, um, and you're doing some pretty impressive stuff right now. And uh, you, know, you recently founded an organization that we're going to get into called LID that gets into legal design. I want you to take us through the life of Nikki Shaver and talk about, you know, your training, talk about where you're from and get us all the way up to speed with where you are right now and the work that you're, that you're doing. All right. Well, hold on to your horses and on because the story of Nikki Shaver is lengthy. Um, I am international. Um, in fact, when I met my husband, I met him online and I reached out uh, on a dating profile saying that I wanted someone who understood what it was like to be innately international. Uh, so that's how I would classify myself also. I was born in the Netherlands and grew up in France and Germany and I graduated from school in Germany. I went to an international school. Um, and when I graduated school, I moved to Canada, which is one of my home countries. I have dual nationality, Canada and Australia. Um, and I studied there, I studied um, English literature and history, went on to do my master's in English and really thought, this is it, I'm going to be an academic, I love universities. Um, and I did my master's and became somewhat jaded with this notion that, you know, from this castle in the sky, wisdom would disseminate and have an actual impact on the wider population. Um, so. At the time, I had already decided to move to Australia, and when I got there, instead of continuing on and doing my PhD, I decided to go to law school where I could actually have sort of an active influence on things in the real world. And like every lawyer who goes to law school, I initially did so because I wanted to save the world. Um, I imagined I was going to be an international human rights lawyer, you know, work for the UN, all of that kind of thing. And of course, what happened I graduated law school. I worked with a judge in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, and then I wound up in commercial law, and I'm still working in commercial law. So much for saving the world. Um, but 
in commercial law, I became very interested in, I was a litigator. I became very interested in defamation law, media law, um, which still had a tangential connection to people's rights. Um, and I loved it. I, I worked in private practice in a very large firm. I then worked in private practice for a mid-sized firm. And then I went in-house and I worked for media companies, newspaper, TV. Um, but my husband, who by then I had met, and I decided that we wanted to be close to the other parts of our family who were closer towards North America and Europe. And we moved to Canada somewhat naively thinking, we are seasoned professionals with good careers. We will be able to walk into Canada and get a job. And of course, I knew I would have to requalify in law in Canada, but I thought I'd be able to get a legal job in the meantime while I was requalifying. That did not happen. Um, and in fact, I went through a period where no one would return my phone calls. And I was humbled by that. And in retrospect, it was probably a good thing um, to have to kind of start over. I was very fortunate because I had a group of friends in Canada from when I had studied there. And I was invited to be a part of a bookshop, a book group. And in that book club were four people who worked in law, but for knowledge management departments and I had no idea what that was but um, out of desperation I asked all of them to distribute my CV and I got an interview um, with someone who was then became my first boss in Canada who hired me in a contract role as a KM specialist and from day dot in the firm I was working on enterprise search solutions I was applying metadata to documents, looking at intranet portals, and I loved it. Um, totally different than what I knew of the legal industry. Um, I really enjoyed the fact that even though I was working in a law firm again, I was actually working with so many different people, not just lawyers, but also people in HR and finance and business development all across the firm. Um, in a very short amount of time, I got another job following directly on from that contract, which was a maternity leave position as an assistant director of KM at another firm in Toronto. And from then, I quickly got a job as director of KM at Stegman Elliott in Toronto. So I, I rose fairly quickly through the ranks once I found what I loved, which I think is advice that I would actually give to people in the world at large generally and to my kids as well which is when you find something you love often you'll be good at it because it's in line with your natural skill set and one thing i remember thinking when i got to statement elliot was i love my job so much and i feel like i don't have to force myself to be someone else in order to be good at what i do because exactly who i am is what is successful in this type of job. It's just exactly aligned with my personality. Um, and what I was doing is effectively what I now do in New York, where I'm based um, currently. And I work at Paul Hastings, uh, which is a large law firm. We have offices across 21 um, different jurisdictions. Um, and I, I lead knowledge and innovation functions um, for the firm globally. Um, but what I was doing at Steichman and what I continue to do now is what I like to call future-proofing the law firm. Um, being across legal technology, um, understanding 
methods of optimizing processes, um, making sure that the lawyers have everything that they need to practice at their absolute best, that we're streamlining things at the firm so that we're really providing the best possible value to clients, um, thinking about how we can serve our clients better as strategic partners. Um, and so some of that is technology-based, but it's also about people and the way that you staff matters. And it's also about processes. And it's also, I would argue, about data. Um, and in fact, I've come to love this so much that I would say it's not just my career, it's now also my hobby. Um, to the point where my boss has actually told me I need more diversification in my interests because I might quit work, but I'm actually still doing stuff around legal technology and innovation methodologies. And to that end, as you mentioned, Anand, I, um, I have various passions. I'm really pa passionate about cross-vertical um, collaboration in legal, um, and I'm passionate about innovation methodologies. And so I started a blog called Tower of Babel. For those who are interested, it's at babel-law.com um, that talks about legal technology and the way it's unfolding across the world. Because given my international background, um, one of my interests as well is really just the global ecosystem of legal technology. Um, and I, I actually now host a podcast with ILTA called The Global Legal Innovators, where I interview people from across the world on the way that the legal tech ecosystem is evolving. Um, and I'm happy to say that my, my university run has come full circle. I'm an adjunct professor this fall teaching a course on legal technology at Cardozo Law School. And I founded this organization called LID, which stands for the Legal Innovation and Design Group, um, because I really found that there was not any organization that properly supported people with educational resources around innovation methodologies in commercial law. So there you go. That's my long story and on to where we are today in New York City and specifically in the bedroom currently of my Brooklyn apartment. That's right. As we record this in July of 2020, in the middle of uh, shelter in place during this pandemic, that is exactly right. Well, Nikki, there's so much to unpack in what you just just said. I want to go back to something that you said that is really inspiring, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And that is, when you find the thing that you love, you will rise quickly. Right? As you mentioned, uh, you know, when you connected with that. Um, that that role in knowledge man, management in Canada and, and certainly now in the U.S., you've risen very quickly. You've taken on increasing, um, you know, increasing responsibility and increasing authority at the firms that you were associated with. What were you doing that uh, that made you love it so much? I mean, what kind? You mentioned, you know, you were you were implementing enterprise search. You were, uh, you know, working with metadata. You were creating all these systems, but. What was it that uh, that you connected with so much on a day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week basis when you were a, a rising star in, in Canada in knowledge management? Um, well, I remember when my, my boss at Steichman, Andrea Allison, was interviewing me for the position. She said, what I really need, part of this role is um, technology, and I really need someone who is really technically apt and i don't know that about you yet and i said i don't know that about myself yet either and i got into the role and we both discovered that i was i just 
I love the logic of the way systems work. I love understanding the ins and outs of functionality. I am by no means a technologist. I don't code, although I, I do have some interest in learning. Um, but I have, a, I think, an understanding for user experience and why and how a system needs to be intuitive for a user. And I love the problem-solving nature of we have this pain point in practice, and we need to find something to ease that pain point. How do we do it? And I think that problem-solving, working with the technology itself, which I found just natural and interesting, um, but then also the strategic side of business, which is something I really hadn't been able to get my teeth into before. And interestingly, as a lawyer, um, you don't really do strategy until quite a bit later in your career. You might get a sense of it, you know, when you're looking at a case at the outset, but it's really the partner who sets the strategy. And you never learn about management or the larger business of law, which I actually think is a fundamental mistake. I think lawyers should know from very young age that they're part of a larger business and understand what that means. But that's another thing that I really enjoyed was I had a team and I was managing people and that was about building relationships. And in fact, getting things done was also about building relationships outside of my team um, in order to ensure that we could collaborate toward the larger goal. And all of that came quite naturally to me. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that uh, the response. Now, you uh, you talked about. I mean, you you've talked about a lot of um, ideas and concepts that I think may be a bit, uh, you know, unfamiliar to our listeners. Right? You've talked about um, you know collaboration cross vertically. You've talked about uh, legal design, which is something that I want to get into a bit. You've talked about a lot of, um, you know, I, I think you, you, you certainly mentioned offline agile and other kind of project management uh, approaches. Um, how did you get into uh, the kind of maybe the next generation of collaboration, the next generation of how information should be presented? At what point did you uh, endeavor to go past just exactly what was in your job description and do more and apply some very interesting concepts to the work that you were doing inside of a firm? Yeah, um, good question. I mean, I think part of this, and, and it, as we'll see when we talk a little bit more about design as well, I do have, I, I'm curious, I'm a curious person. Um, and, and that is sort of a basic, actually, mindset that you have to have for legal design or design, service design of any type. Um, I started, of course, like many of us who hold these positions, reading quite obsessively about the, the legal ecosystem, so the legal innovation world, but then also more broadly, um, reading many different blogs. Um, getting into Twitter and, as I like to call it, law Twitter, which is a very specific um, <clears throat> ecosystem of, of specific people who work in the industry. Um, design in particular, I went to a conference and I saw it was a, it was a legal technology conference that was very interesting over one day at Mars, which was one of the early 
tech incubators in Toronto that had a legal arm to it. And someone got up and spoke from a design agency and her talk was one of the most inspiring things that I heard that day. And it really stayed with me and it was all about the importance of creative problem solving and the impact that could make in particular in creating a culture of innovation at a firm. And anyone who has worked in innovation at a large law firm knows that it is like trying extremely hard to push a large creaky tanker in the right direction. It is slow, oftentimes thankless work. Um, and you're not necessarily surrounded by people who applaud you because people don't like change, they fear change. Um, so this really appealed to me because I could see the value in applying this sort of methodology to in fact changing our culture. And then I brought it back to the firm and my, my boss at the time was familiar with it as well and we ended up bringing it into the firm and it was hugely successful. Um, so that really then stimulated my appetite for that kind of thing. And I did a lot of research and then ended up studying um, design thinking and doing a number of workshops and I now quite frequently facilitate sessions. I'm by no means a designer, but I'm a, I'm a design enthusiast, I would say. Um, and then similarly, as I said, you know, with a job like this, a lot of the time you kind of have to be someone who's thinking out of the box all the time. Um, and that means being aware and looking not just within your industry, but also cross industry for different types of methodologies you can use ways to get people around you thinking differently too um, and so th that's where that stuff came from and the cross vertical I mean all of this comes from the landscape of what I read and what I'm exposed to and the people I speak to and the conversations that I have and so take us through uh, one of those concepts legal design um, what is legal design in your eyes and why should our listeners care about it, right? I think one of the things we talked about um, before this discussion is how concepts like legal design and uh, cross-vertical uh, collaboration can sound, I think, you know, the words we might have used are like hippy-dippy, I think maybe airy-fairy were <laughs> the words that, 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 uh, that we used. Um, and so uh, despite that maybe stigma that it has, right, is it's kind of soft, like not very rigorous. Um, what is it and why is it, why is it important? Why should people know about it and maybe consider implementing some of its principles? Right. Well, I mean, design thinking is a term that was likely coined by IDEO, which is a design agency based in California. Um, but service design predated design thinking um, and, and is really an extension of other types of design, like product design. When most of us think of design, we think of products like Apple, right? Um, but service design is taking design principles and applying them to services. So you can design a service, like when you walk into a Starbucks, it doesn't matter where you are. The process for ordering and then picking up your food and your coffee is pretty much consistent in any Starbucks. That's a particular service that has been designed to solve problems of space and efficiency. Um, and design thinking, which is 
largely what we talk about when we're talking about using something like this in a legal environment. It really is a human-centered and collaborative approach to problem solving. It's problem solving, but it's problem solving that is different because it's focused on the human. And that's exactly where, as you said, lawyers go, oh my goodness, we're talking about people and emotions and I don't like this and it's not comfortable and I'm, you know, I don't like it. Um, to say nothing of the fact that in a design session, you may well also be asked to sketch rather than to write, for example, which is super uncomfortable for a group of lawyers often. Um, legal design is really, it's just another, they're, they're almost interchangeable terms. So legal design is service design that is applied within the legal sphere. It's often applied, for example, to legal documents. So you might take a very staid and dry contract, which as you know, every clause can take up almost an entire page um, needlessly really. And you look at the intent and you get back to what the key meaning is and how the user, so the recipient of that contract, would like to be able to digest that information. And you might end up with a contract, for example, that is far more visual than where you started. And the reason these things are important, I mean, you know, to put it plainly and in terms that everyone really, you know, understands when it comes to business and law is under, after all business, um, McKinsey did a massive study of about 2 million pieces of financial data, and they found that design-led companies uh, make 32% more revenue and 56% higher total returns to shareholders are provided by those companies than companies that are not design-led. Um, everyone uses service design. Um, when I say everyone, I mean if you look at the companies that frequently apply these principles, it's BMW, it's IBM, it's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Airbnb, it's banks. Um, it, this is not unusual. It's just that in law, we're a little bit late to it. So as Einstein said, if you always do what you always did, you will always get what you always got. And if we're going to be pushing the envelope, trying to innovate, trying to be future forward, we need to find ways of doing that, and legal design is one way. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Nikki, but can you, you know, you're the, you're a legal design guru, so I feel very comfortable putting you on the spot here, but can you take us through, um, you know, a, a undesigned uh, service delivery system, if you want to call it a system, right, being undesigned, and then uh, how that system becomes better, uh, more efficient, more effective after you apply some, uh, some service design and then, uh, you know, actually enable, you know, enable the system to, to provide results in this kind of conscious designed way, as opposed to, uh, maybe a more of a helter skelter way. Well, that really is putting me on the spot. <laughs> Um, to all listeners, Anand did not tell me ahead of time he was going to do this. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I think one good example, uh, and I'll use a legal example, would be um, maybe you're trying to, okay, how about this? You're trying to onboard new clients. Um, you need to get certain things from them. You need to get them certain documents. Um, there are different points at which things need to be signed. Uh, conflict checks need to be done. You need to understand 
what uh, their appetite is for perhaps certain risk and certain costs. Um, it's a process done by email often that can go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it could take really quite a long time. The, the way that design works, there are actually very specific steps to it, um, at least in the design thinking framework, and the steps are empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. Um, and the empathize part is key, and really what this means is listening to the end user so in this case it would be a client who is being onboarded and really speaking to them and understanding with an open mind with open questions to understand exactly what the problem is that we are trying to solve so rather than jumping straight in to try to improve a process or improve the way that we do something or to solve a problem the first part is that you understand how this is a problem for the person what their needs are around this problem. Um, and, and you spend quite a lot of time before you jump to a solution, exploring the problem and really understanding what it is. Um, and if you think about it, that makes so much sense. And, and it's, again, completely different from the way that we approach law most of the time. In law, there's a problem and you immediately jump to finding a solution for it. But when you're talking about problems that are perhaps less discreet um, and more open, you could create a solution unless you spend time with a problem first and then find out subsequently that not only does the solution not work for the user, but also that you've solved a different problem than was actually the problem. So an example that's often used in the industry is that of a lawnmower. Um, Someone comes to you and says, um, I, need a, I need a better lawnmower. And you go, great. And you go off and you research and you come back and you bring them the flashiest lawnmower. It's faster, it's more precise, and you know, it gets a lawn cut really, really quickly. Um, but then when you find out what the issue is, perhaps actually the faster, better lawnmower solves a little bit of the problem, but the problem in fact was this person does not want a lawn that is out of control. And there may have been a much better way of discovering, of dealing with that problem. For example, if you really dug deep, maybe this person doesn't have a lot of time to mow the lawn. Maybe this person is um, not able to be on their feet for very long, and so mowing a lawn is really uncomfortable or painful or difficult for them. Um, maybe their lawn is actually really complex, so a lawnmower can't get into every nook and cranny. And maybe a better solution, had you actually asked these questions to begin with, would have been to find a lawn growth retardant or to replace lawn with AstroTurf. And a better lawnmower, in fact, wasn't really solving the problem at all. Um, so you spend a lot of time up front with the problem understanding what the person's needs are, and defining the problem in the context of those needs. Then you ideate, and so part of design thinking as well is divergent and convergent thinking. So you go very, very big with your thinking, and then you narrow it again. And ideation is where you open right up to as many possible ideas as you can think of that will solve this problem. Um, and you let your mind go wild. You 
let go of inhibitions, which again can be very difficult for people to do who are used to sitting in a room writing and solving problems in a really very specific way. And this is creative. It's letting go of everything and don't let yourself think, but that, that couldn't be possible. Just let yourself go there. Once you've got all those ideas, you refocus and you think, what is the best idea? And then you actually prototype. So rather than um, going away and then very painstakingly creating a solution, you prototype something quickly on the go so that you can immediately test that solution with end users, get their feedback, and the whole process is iterative. So then you continue to ideate and prototype and test, and you continuously keep the end user in mind as you're doing that. And so the, the I can't tell you what the answer would be to a better onboarding process because I'm not out there speaking to the end users who are the clients, but the point is that's where you would start. And the end position would be something that works much better from the client perspective. I mean, it may be, you know, it may be an app where everything is done in one place, very easily accessible from anywhere, and they don't get 50 emails on the subject. They just have a very easy process, but who knows? We'd have to ask the end user. I love, I love, you know, I, I'm so glad I asked you that question that I put you on the spot because that elucidated a lot. <laughs> Um, this theme keeps coming up on this podcast and one, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about the theme. One way is empathy, right? It's not presuming that you know the exact answer to the question, not even assuming that you know all of the appropriate information, uh, not, not assuming that you know the feelings and motivations around a certain request, right? This has come up in my discussion with Ali Shahidi, who's the chief innovation officer over at Shepard Mullen in LA. Uh, you know, he talked about how, you know, oftentimes attorneys are scared to ask the client questions, right? They, they feel maybe that their place in the relationship is, um, you know, client uh, says jump, they ask how high, right? Uh, they come to the table with the tools that they have and they just presume that the client is asking them to solve uh, for, for a certain thing based on the tools that they already have. When maybe exactly as you mentioned, it's, you know, they ask for a lawnmower, but they've got a deeper set of problems. And, uh, you know, Ali's approach to it is trying to figure that out, really getting to the bottom of it, asking a lot of questions. Um, you know, another person that we had on the podcast, uh, Augie Rakow, former big law partner, co-founder of Atrium. Uh, and he talked about how it's kind of crazy in law that there isn't a process at the end of an engagement for the senior people at the firm to sit down with the senior, uh, you know, senior folks on the client side and do a postmortem, right? What worked? What can we do better next time? Okay. Um, what's coming down the pike for you? Um, you know, uh, what do you see as the things that we did really, really well, not so well, right? Who would you work with again and why, right? All of these things seem to, to echo the same theme, which is, um, be curious, ask questions. Um, it seems like that's where a lot of legal design is, is trying to push lawyers in the industry, right? 
That's exactly right. And I mean, I completely echo what both of your previous guests have said. It's a very big problem in law, I think. And, you know, in the pre-call for this recording, Anand, we talked about <clears throat> why this might be the case. And it's a really, really good question. I mean, I think if you go back to the days where your attorney was someone who lived in your small town and they knew you and they had a relationship with you and they understood your business and what you were trying to do, that was a very personal relationship. And even though a lot of legal work still comes in through relationships, there seems to be this real almost fear, um, hesitation is probably a better word, to go to the client and ask about service delivery and how that can be improved. And it seems bizarre that an after action review, which is so common in every other industry, wouldn't just be par for the course in a firm. And when you say it comes down to empathy, you're absolutely right. And to be completely honest with you, it annoys me so much that empathy is seen as a soft word in law and as something that we have to shy away from. Because at its core, fundamentally, law is a client service business. And a client service business is all about knowing and serving your clients. And the way to do that is through empathy. That's where it starts. You have to understand where your clients are coming from, what they want to achieve, the pressure that they're under. Um, and, and only then can you be certain that what you're providing them by way of service is hitting the mark. So it does come down to empathy and it's something we should just fundamentally have at the core of everything that we do in law. There's this book I'm sure that you've heard of called The Lean Startup by Eric Reese. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. R-I-E-S, I believe. And um, instead of referring to it as empathy, he refers to this product feedback loop where you know, maybe that's like the more rigorous way of referring to it. You know, I agree. Empathy kind of sounds like a therapy session or something, right? Where the product feedback loop sounds more rigorous, right? But ultimately, it's the same thing. It's, um, you know, doing, doing the research side of things, trying to, you know, uh, trying to understand the problem that exists, the pain point, right, is the word that, that he would use. And then creating a rapid prototype is exactly as you mentioned, but not just assuming that that rapid prototype is even um, on the right path, but taking the prototype to the potential client and saying, hey, what do you think about this? And then uh, really listening, making some tweaks and going back over and over and over and over. You know, by the time the product is deployed, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, um, you know, going back to the, the market, to the potential client saying, hey, how about this? Hotter, colder, you know, is this closer to, to the kind of thing that can solve the pain? Um, and, and, you know, I think that, that that is something that is so common in tech and so common in the product side of things. And it, it just seems kind of foreign and maybe even scary in, in the service side uh, of the equation. Agree, disagree? Yeah, I, I, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about the practice of law itself. And I, interestingly, I mean, I think we kind of do this naturally as lawyers when we're practicing. You know, the solution, it's not like a client gives you a problem and then you come back to them with a baked solution without having gone to them 
in between. There's plenty of discussion, there's plenty of back and forth. An agreement won't be finalized until the client has weighed in numerous times. It's on the service side. And maybe maybe the issue is that it's that's not in a lawyer's sweet spot and it's not what they're trained to do. They're trained to solve the legal problems. They're not trained to look at the business model of a law firm and how client services are delivered. And that's really what we're talking about here. Um, so I, I think that's where we have some work to do. And that's partly why I'm interested in cross-vertical, which means you know looking to different areas of the legal ecosystem um, and bringing them together to create change. So I think one thing that we can do, for example, to improve that issue around service delivery and the fact that it should be top of mind is educate associates very early on, not just about the law itself, but also about the business of law, how that works. And I think that's actually become more urgent now than ever before, because without a doubt, people who are graduating from law school now will have to deal with a significant amount of change over the course of their careers. They will have to be somewhat tech savvy. Um, they will not be able to sit in an office and put pen to paper and that's, that's where their legaling stops. They will actually have to use technology because clients are demanding it and that's how to get legal work done efficiently and effectively now. Um, but they should also understand how law works as a business and how that may change over the course of their careers. For example, how many firms are now moving to add other types of services or products to their revenue generating model, which changes the way that the firm works. Um, if you have a product, and by product, I don't necessarily mean that your law firm has to go into the business of producing technology, for example, but I mean that you could look at the way that you provide legal advice and develop revenue from some form of product that enables you to deliver legal advice any time of day, 24-7, and have people pay for that so your lawyers don't have to be on the line for it hourly in order to provide it, and it's more accessible to clients. Um, having those types of revenue generating products and tools in your arsenal as a law firm takes you from being a business that has one revenue stream to a business that has multiple revenue streams. And that's something that will fundamentally change the way that firms look at billing and pricing. Um, and it's the reality of what law students will face. So part of this is around early education on topics that we haven't previously formally offered to law students and associates, but I think we now really need to be thinking of doing that. Are you also a proponent of um, kind of job title diversification in law firms? Uh, that was an awful way to ask that question. Let me let me describe what I mean by that. I mean, it seems, <laughs> it seems to me that you know law firms certainly have world class lawyers, right? Uh, that's their stock and trade. That's why they're so valuable. But there are, as you've already described, so many other important 
uh, roles and uh, tasks that come alongside providing legal services. It is, um, you know, understanding the client's business problems. It is selling them legal services. It is following up after the fact and maybe retaining them as a client. It is maybe some level of data science as far as processing their work, uh, processing, you know, their, you know, all of the data that goes alongside, um, you know, the, the legal work that is done. Um, it is pricing and value and all of these kinds of things. I mean, um, should there be more room in law firms for lawyers to kind of step aside and really just maybe you know stay in their lane is kind of a dramatic way to put it, but just focus on doing world-class legal work, which they, which they do, and allow new folks that you get into the firm to do world-class services sales work and world-class you know, customer success and support work and world-class data science work. Um, is that where Absolutely. Yes, and I, I think that's vital, actually, Anand. I think it's vital. What we need to do get, is get rid of the legal-non-legal divide in law firms and the status and the hierarchy that is focused around that. Um, you know, it's a law firm, so lawyers have always had a different status within a firm than other types of business roles, but increasingly, that's the wrong way to organize a firm, partly because you're not going to get the talent that you need in these other roles that are becoming increasingly critical unless you can make it clear to them that their status and recognition, both within the firm and also with clients, is on par with the way that they would be defined in other industries. These are people, the people you want are, are world-class. They are professionals in their own right. The fact that they're not necessarily lawyers shouldn't negate that. Um, and, and hiring that kind of talent then enables you, exactly as you say, to let the lawyers do lawyering and to have other people with expertise from other industries or other business skills to work on other problems. Um, I mean, one example of that is in our team, we call our department the practice innovation department. We have legal project managers, we have business analysts, we have um, people who are, are effectively developers. Um, we have people whose specialty is innovation. We also have lawyers, we have research analysts who are librarians, um, which by the way, they require a master's degree to be a librarian, plus they need enormous education and law to do it in a legal environment. Some of these roles now have charge out rates. Um, they're lower than the lawyer's charge out rates, but we have charge out rates because it makes sense. Um, when we interface directly with clients to solve different kinds of problems for the clients that still sit within the legal, the legal mindset, um, the legal industry, um, it makes sense to charge for that expertise in the same way that we would charge for legal expertise when it comes from lawyers. Um, so yes, absolutely. I don't think that necessarily means a diversification of titles, but it is a diversification of the hierarchy and an interruption of the hierarchy. Well put. Um, I want to uh, move on with, with the limited time that we, we have remaining 
to again put you on the spot, Nikki, and again ask you um, about some predictions for the future. I, I always wrap up this uh, this podcast with uh, with a call for for some kind of um, some predictions that you could determine in twenty years or ten years whether they came true or not. Um, from your perspective, from your perch um, as a, a senior leader at a, at a law firm, as someone who's really uh, got her arms around um, a lot of these maybe next generation ways of approaching services delivery, and uh, you know, thirdly, as someone who, you know, as, as all of us, is kind of in the middle of this new normal, right? That, you know, overly used phrase in the middle of this pandemic. Um, how is the legal industry going to change in the next uh, in the next 20 years? I mean, if you fast forwarded to 2040, uh, how are how are things going to have, have changed and, and why? I think that's a very interesting question, especially since you're asking it right now during the continued lockdown amidst COVID-19. I mean, I think one thing that we will see and are already starting to see is the reduction of bricks and mortar footprint for law firms. I don't think that we'll see as many glossy lobbies and reception areas and um, an office space as, as we have previously. I do think that there are big law firms who will continue to thrive, but the large law firms that will continue to thrive are those that understand that they need to start changing and adapting now to a future that looks different. Um, those who stubbornly refuse to move because they're still getting good business now, that's not going to last. And I think some of those firms will fail um, because clients are asking for this and the clients that are not yet asking for this kind of thing are going to start asking for it. They're going to say, you have to start billing differently. Um, we need you to be using technology whenever you can. Um, we refuse to have this many people on a matter when we could have a tech assisted matter process with alternative timekeepers that keep the costs down and fewer lawyers on a matter. And so I do think that some of the big law firms will fail. I think we're going to see a continued rise and it's been slow, but I think this is going to really start shaping the legal industry in a different way of new law model firms that are founded on a completely different set of principles um, where there is no divide between law, non-law, where different kinds of cross-industry expertise come to bear in providing genuine strategic partnerships to clients not just legal advice to clients. Um, and finally, I think we're going to see a fundamental change in the way that law firms recruit on multiple levels. One is that it will no longer be the pyramid model we have now of recruiting many, many junior associates and gradually weeding them out until there are a few who make it to partner. I think the intake model will be more like, um, it'll be more like a funnel. We'll have a certain number of associates who come in where we understand we need to train them up to take on expertise, but then we'll bring other experts around them to shape matters alongside them, like legal project managers, 
um, data analysts, um, and it will be more of a team in the way that legal work is conducted than, or at least I know we work in teams currently, but it will, won't be a pure legal team anymore. It will be a team of mixed experts led by a couple of lawyers. I think a lot of large company general counsel and in-house counsel will listen to what you just said and smile. Because I think that's what they want. That's <laughs> really what they want. Um, that's that's fascinating. Nikki, uh, I could keep talking to you about this for a very long time, but um, let's wrap up here. I know you're a, a busy person. Um, so let's wrap up here. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights about legal design, about the future of law. Uh, it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you on the Modern Lawyer. It's my pleasure, and um, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweeted us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.